The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. It's April 17, 2019, and Nigel Shelby is a vibrant freshman at Huntsville High School in Alabama. He enjoys singing, gymnastics, and he plays several musical instruments. Nigel has dreams of becoming a star one day, and he's also a very caring young man with a heart of gold. He's especially sensitive towards his mom, checking in with her up to five or six times a day just to make sure she's okay. Above all, Nigel is full of life and wants everyone around him to be as well. April 18th, 2019. Nigel Shelby takes his own life due to the harassment and bullying he'd been experiencing at school because he was gay. Though Nigel's mom loved and accepted him, the depression he was experiencing as a result of the bullying was just too much to bear. His mom is devastated, and his community is searching for answers. It's been nearly two years since Nigel's death, but every day, people like him still deal with subtle and overt messages that they're different, abnormal, or even sinful. Sometimes these messages come with physical violence, and other times the emotional abuse alone is just too much to handle. This is Episode 5 of the What Would It Take podcast. Join me as I ask, what would it take for love to conquer all? Listen in. Before we jump in today, let me define the language I'll be using. You're going to hear me say the initials LGBTQ a lot in this episode. And in case you're not familiar with what that means, let me break it down for you. It stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, and there are other qualifiers that could be added, such as intersex, asexual, or two-spirit. But the abbreviation LGBTQ covers the majority of the community that I'm speaking about today. So that's what I'm going to use moving forward. If you want to learn more about which terms to use and when to use them, you can find a link or two in the show notes of this episode. Now, as you may have guessed from the story I started with, LGBTQ youth are at increased risks of suicide and violent crime. And while it's true that the teenage years can be difficult for everyone, for LGBTQ youth, they can be especially dangerous. According to a national survey of 34,000 respondents in 2019 by the Trevor Project, 39% of LGBTQ youth considered attempting suicide within the past 12 months. That number rose to 54% for transgender and non-binary youth. That same survey found that 71% of LGBTQ youth reported experiencing discrimination due to their gender identity or sexual orientation. Moreover, members of the LGBTQ community are victims of violent crime at nearly four times the rate of non-LGBTQ folks. Last year alone, at least 30 transgender or gender nonconforming people were murdered. Most of them were Black or Latinx. In 2018, LGBTQ folks comprised roughly 4.5% of the U.S. population, yet they accounted for nearly 20% of hate crime victimizations. That is an astonishing rate, and it speaks to the very real threat that LGBTQ folks face 
and it's especially true for those that are gender non-conforming and trans folks. Their decision to be who they are is a decision to risk physical, emotional, or mental violence. And it doesn't have to be that way. But why is it? Well, quite frankly, it's because our attitudes and beliefs about LGBTQ people are problematic as hell. While societal acceptance for gay marriage has shifted over time in a very positive direction, there are still large segments of our society that harbor unhealthy and harmful beliefs about the LGBTQ community. Sometimes the most painful forms of rejection come from family or other caregivers. LGBTQ youth who face high levels of rejection from their family are over eight times more likely to attempt suicide, five times more likely to report severe depression, and at an increased risk for illegal drug use and sexually transmitted infections such as HIV. When LGBTQ youth feel rejected at home, at school, or say, I don't know, at church, their risk for depression and suicide jumps significantly. And I can't help but wonder how often the rejection from family is influenced by our harmful theology. See, I grew up in a tradition that believed in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, and as a result concluded that any form of sexual orientation or gender identity that wasn't heterosexual or aligned with your typical gender roles and identities was sinful. Now, this meant that those who identified as lesbian, gay, or queer of any sort were going to hell. That's what I believed. I believed that those lifestyles, those identities were an abomination and destined for the pits of hell. It sounds harsh. It sounds terrible. And yet I was convinced in the depths of my being that it was true. And though more churches and denominations are starting to take inclusive approaches, that theology is still pervasive. And it's not just Southern Baptist churches or Pentecostal churches like the one I grew up in or Methodist churches. It's Mennonite and Anabaptist congregations too. And while I can empathize with the emotional and theological tension that this issue creates for some people, I've got to say plainly that to be anything but radically inclusive to people, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity, is to demean their humanity. Moreover, it's deadly. It's not just the societal violence and rejection that LGBTQ people face. It's the continued discussions about whether they can take communion, be married in the church, officiate services, lead worship, pastor, preach, whatever the case may be. Those discussions, those questions, those arguments, those are all dings on their humanity. It's as if we're asking, are they whole enough? Are they worthy enough to be part of our community, to do life with us? You might push back and say that I'm putting words in your mouth. And if that's the case, I'd invite you to hear with different ears. Imagine if someone came up to you, or better yet, imagine if someone came up to me and said to me that I couldn't preach this Sunday, or I couldn't lead worship, or I couldn't offer the benediction or get married because I am cisgender or because I'm heterosexual. If those words were spoken to me, I would feel wounded to the core of my being because the ways that my attraction for other people expresses itself the ways in which I'm drawn to folks, the ways in which my gender manifests itself and the ways I feel comfortable expressing my gender, those are all very personal things to me. 
Deeply intimate things, things that in some ways define who I am and how I move through space. So for things that are foundational to me, to be barriers to my participation in the body of Christ, to be barriers or stumbling blocks that keep me from being able to live out and exercise the gifts that I believe are God-given, how can that not be hurtful? How can that not be wounding? How can that be anything but demeaning to my humanity? Each and every day in small groups, on Zoom calls, and in pulpits across the country, we use theology to dismiss and demean our brothers, sisters, and kin who identify as LGBTQ, and we call it righteousness. Worse still, when someone is a victim of violent crime or suicide, we furl our brows and ask ourselves how in the world this could have happened. Well, we know how. Our theology is literally killing people when it should be offering hope. What are these theological beliefs that I keep referencing? Well, I could go through them one by one and debunk them, but someone has already done that work for me. There's an organization called the Reformation Project that has compiled a list of the most common arguments against LGBTQ inclusion in the church and debunked the interpretations that undergird them. So let's go through a couple of those. First up, we've got Sodom and Gomorrah, everyone's favorite childhood Bible story. No, that that can't be right. But I'm sure you all know the story or you're somewhat familiar with it. Abraham and his nephew Lot are traveling through this land. Lot settles in the valley in the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's a great cry about the wickedness that is happening in those cities that goes up to God. So God sends angels to destroy the city. The angels disguised as men go into town to warn Lot and his family that they need to leave. Now, while this is happening, the men of the town come to Lot's home, bang on his door, and demand that he bring the men out into the town square so they can rape them. Like I said, this is a very wholesome family story. Regardless, the story takes a few more gruesome narrative turns that include Lot offering up his daughter or his daughter-in-law to be raped instead, and his own wife being turned to a pillar of salt for having the audacity to look back, I guess. There's a lot here that I find appalling and don't quite understand, but I'm getting sidetracked. The point is, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is often held up as an example of how strongly God feels about the sin of homosexuality. However, the Reformation Project points out that when you take this story in its context, the violence and sin that are taking place are the sin of gang rape. The men of the town weren't honoring ancient hospitality codes of the time, so their actions are designed to illustrate just how violent they'd become. Moreover, there are over 20 references to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Hebrew Bible and Christian scriptures, and none of them explicitly mention same-sex behavior as the reason for the town's destruction. Ezekiel 16.49 lists the charge against them as not helping the poor and needy. Isaiah 1 equates the sin of Sodom with oppressing marginalized groups, murder, and theft. Jeremiah 23.14 links it with adultery, idolatry, and power abuses. Amos 4.1-11 and Zephaniah 2.8-11 compare it to the oppression of the poor as well as prideful and mocking behavior. Nothing at all to do with men liking men. Debunked. The second portion of scripture that the Reformation Project highlights, or that we're going to focus on here, is just the entire book of Leviticus. When I was younger, I often quoted Leviticus 18.22 as the verse that proved that God didn't like homosexuality. Well, 
Turns out there are thousands of ceremonial and moral purity codes in the Hebrew Bible, and for the most part, Christians don't follow them. For example, Leviticus prohibits sex during a woman's period, but I've never heard a sermon decrying that practice. I wonder why that is. Actually, that's beyond the scope of this podcast. We don't have the time or energy to get into that today. I'd also note that though the term abomination is used to describe male-on-male sex acts in Leviticus, it's also used in Ezekiel to describe charging interest on loans, it's used in Isaiah with regard to burning incense, and in Deuteronomy when referring to eating shellfish, rabbit, and pork. So if we can ignore every other time that the word abomination is used, what is the hang-up here? There are quite a few other scriptural arguments that the Reformation Project debunked on its website, so if you're curious, I encourage you to go there and check it out. They not only debunk misconceptions about the text, but they also lay out the case for LGBTQ inclusion. So again, go to the website, listen to the arguments, watch the videos, and judge for yourself. I have to be honest with you, though. When I was wrestling through these questions some 10 or 11 years ago, I came across many of these theological arguments, and they weren't what changed my mind. They're important, and I think they're valuable, but for me, it was what I observed and experienced that shifted my perception. Before I tell you what changed my perception about this issue, I need you to understand something about my spiritual journey. There has been no greater principle in my spiritual walk than this idea that God is love. Remember, at one point in time, I was a homeless kid living with neglectful and abusive parents. And so when I encountered a God that cared about me, that that wanted me, that desired to be in relationship with me, it was revolutionary. And as I was growing up, I had moments where I felt I literally experienced the love of God, either spiritually or through the people around me. So this notion that God was the embodiment of love was very, very important, even crucial to my understanding of spirituality and my own spiritual walk. So when I got to Manchester College and I started walking through the campus, I recalled seeing members of our LGBTQ organization on campus laughing with each other, hugging one another, offering smiles, support, and genuine care to literally everyone who walked by. I observed this tendency for a long time, but one day it finally hit me. I saw them on the mall at campus, just overflowing with love for each person that they encountered. And I was struck deeply by the realization that they were showing more love than I was. They were showing love more deeply, more inclusively, more revolutionarily than I could. And so if I took seriously this belief that God was love, how could I look at them and conclude anything but the fact that God was with them? And if God was with them, then who was I to be against them? I imagine it was something similar to what Peter felt when he was having that rooftop vision. You know, the one where a blanket is laid before him with all kinds of food that he thought was unclean and a voice comes from heaven commanding him to eat, but he says no because nothing unclean has ever touched my mouth. And after two or three times of this vision, Peter finally hears the voice of God saying, don't you dare call anything unclean that I have called clean. And it's at that moment that Peter realizes his theology is mistaken. And he realizes that he is to accept Gentiles into the kingdom of God as well. 
Similarly to Peter, it wasn't a theological argument that changed my mind or shifted my opinion. It was a voice from within. It was my experience that told me that what I was in the presence of was as real as any argument, as any belief that I'd ever held. And I had to acknowledge it. If we take the biblical scripture seriously, then we have to admit that interpretations and meanings change over time. We have to acknowledge that the spirit isn't stagnant, even when we are, and it's time we let ourselves be moved. Moreover, we've got to recognize the very real human cost of our continued rigidity. There's been so much pain at our persistent rejection of the humanity of our LGBTQ family. The spirit has no gender just as it has no race. We are the ones who've created these constructs and boxes that people are forced to live in or check. And we can be the ones to deconstruct them so that we create an understanding of community and family that is large enough for everyone. So once again, we know what the problem is and we know we have to change, but where do we start? Well, here are a few things that you can do to begin making a difference for the lives of our LGBTQ folks. Put your money where your mouth is. Support organizations like GLAAD, PFLAG, Q Christian Fellowship, Indiana Youth Group, or others with your dollars. Share their content on your social media pages, email it out to friends, and help promote the work that they're doing. You can also increase your knowledge. I will be the first to admit there is still so much I just don't know or don't fully understand, and there's nothing wrong with naming that. So do your research. Listen to a podcast on the subject. Seek out LGBTQ stories. The more you expose yourself, the more you'll be able to understand and even empathize. Thirdly, figure out how to both talk to your LGBTQ friends, family, and acquaintances, and how to listen deeply. This is especially important if you are the parent of an LGBTQ youth. Your words and actions are the first line of defense against the violence your child might experience in this world or in the church. So be informed, act with empathy, and listen with compassion. Apologize, then apologize again. I can't tell you how far a sincere apology will go. And when you apologize, don't just acknowledge the wrong you've done, but take active and serious steps to correct the behavior that hurt them in the first place. Take a stand. Call your brothers, sisters, family members in. Let them know when they have violated or disrespected your LGBTQ friends, family, or even children. You can help hold the boundaries, especially for young folks. And when you do that, you build trust and you help create a safer environment for everyone. Finally, I think it's time we end this debate about LGBTQ inclusion in the church. Whether you're a Mennonite, a Methodist, or a Mormon, it's time we stop demeaning the humanity of people. One's sexual orientation or gender identity have nothing to do with their character, their talents, or their worth. It's time to decide once and for all that LGBTQ folks have the same opportunities, rights, and privileges as cisgender heterosexual folks do. Now, I've drawn a pretty hard line in the sand here, and I've made it clear that I don't believe there is any legitimate theological or spiritual argument to exclude LGBTQ folks. 
However, maybe you're listening to this podcast and you've made it this far and you still hold some of those beliefs that I referenced earlier in this episode, yet you don't want to be part of the problem. You want to be loving. You want to be accepting. You want to ensure that you're doing what you can to help keep the LGBTQ folks in your life safe. Well, luckily, there are still some things that you can do. First and foremost, you can still have conversations, especially if this is with your child. Show them you love and care for them and that you respect their evolving sense of identity, even if it doesn't align with your faith. That is so crucial. Respect who they tell you they are, even if it doesn't align with your faith. The important thing to remember is that you cannot change their experience of their gender or sexual orientation. So don't try. This is a non-negotiable. They know what you think and believe, so there's absolutely, positively no need for you to remind them about Leviticus 18.22 or Sodom and Gomorrah. Your job, your ministry, is to show them they have your unconditional love and support regardless of whether you understand or agree. Show them that your love is greater than your doubt. And maybe even that is just too ambiguous for you. So guess what? I've got some simple do's and don'ts. Don't tell them their orientation or lifestyle is a sin. Once again, that's a non-negotiable. Do not, under any circumstance, ever say that to your child. Or to anyone for that matter. Just don't say it. Don't quote scripture at them. That literally never works for anyone on anything ever. So just don't do it. Don't withhold affection because of your opinion. Don't go silent and refuse to discuss the subject. Keep those lines of communication open. It will pay off in the long run. Here's what you can do. Do tell them you love them no matter what. Do listen to understand, not to fix them. Listen deeply and intentionally. Show them non-triggering physical affection if it's appropriate. That might mean hugging them, rubbing their back, giving them a kiss on the forehead. I said non-triggering because it's important to recognize that we don't always know what the people in our lives have been through. And especially if you're dealing with people that are survivors of sexual assault, some forms of physical affection can feel very harmful and dangerous. And so you don't want your attempts at showing love to be perceived as dangerous. That can undo the hard work that you're putting into the relationship. Apologize when you make a mistake, such as misgendering them. Always, always, always apologize and work to correct the behavior. Look, we're all bound to make a mistake no matter how well-meaning or well-intentioned we are. What's important is acknowledging and admitting that we've made a mistake and then correcting that behavior in the future. This is especially crucial when we're talking about misgendering folks. That's using the wrong pronouns for them. It's going to happen. You're going to slip up. Give yourself grace. Ask for grace from someone else. And then make sure you are being intentional at using the correct pronouns in the future and requiring the people around you to do the same. And the final do, which I alluded to earlier, is that you should demand that other adults, caregivers, and family in your circle respect the LGBTQ folks in your life. Don't allow demeaning language. Don't allow talks of sinfulness, damnation, or hell, and correct others when they misgender someone, especially if it's your child. Setting and maintaining these boundaries can go a long way in establishing a sense of safety in a relationship, even if your theology 
hasn't quite caught up to where you want it to be yet. Finally, I want to leave you with a story of hope. Several years ago, in 2017 actually, I was one of several youth chaperones for the convention in Orlando. We took uh, the Mennonite Youth Fellowship, the teenagers from our church, down to the convention. And I gotta be honest, it was a bit overwhelming. I'm a fairly new Mennonite comparatively, so it was my first convention, and I couldn't quite wrap my mind around the fact that people got so excited to meet in the hallway and sing hymns. It just didn't really make sense to me, and it's still one of the great mysteries of the Mennonite tradition, but I'm getting off track here. Regardless, over the course of the week, there were many moments that stayed with me, but none as vividly as the Pink Menno service. And for those listening that may not be Anabaptist or Mennonite, Pink Menno is an organization designed to support the inclusion of LGBTQ folks within the Mennonite church. Pink Menno put together a worship service led by people who identify as part of the LGBTQ community, and it was beautiful. It flowed powerfully from the welcome to the benediction, but one moment in particular really moved me. Near the end of the service, they made space for a glitter anointing that took place. They invited anyone who wanted to do so to participate, and one of our teens who identified as transgender at the time stood up, made their way back to be anointed with one of our adult chaperones. Within seconds of them standing up and walking back, I looked down the row at the other teenagers from my church, and their heads started to turn as they looked at each other silently, made eye contact, having a discussion without any words at all, and within moments, They stood up nearly in unison and all collectively made their way back to gather around the teen that went to be anointed. So we all stood back there in the back of this conference room at Mennonite Convention in Orlando in a circle and received our glitter anointings. And it was beautiful. There were tears shed and smiles exchanged. What struck me most about that moment was how quickly the decision was made to join the team that had first stood up and gone to the back to be anointed. There were no theological discussions, no doctrinal divisions or debates, no questions about whether or not it was the right thing to do. They just acted in love and they moved in unison. It still brings tears to my eyes when I think about that moment. And afterwards, the teen who stood up initially to be anointed confided in me that though they had grown up in church their entire life, that service was the first time they came close to feeling like they experienced God. That service was the first time in their entire lives. I share this final story because it gives me hope. Hope that the generation behind me holds more wisdom than we care to acknowledge. Hope that one day soon, it might not have to be such a battle to love and accept people just as they are. Hope that the people I love and care about who identify as members of the LGBTQ community won't have to wonder if they're accepted for much longer. That's a hope worth hanging on to. What would it take for love to conquer all? We know the answer. Now let's get to work. Thank you for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. To view the source material for this episode, check out the show notes. If you'd like to find more great content from Anabaptist World, visit anabaptistworld.org. 
And if you want to learn more about me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Benjamin J. Tapper. Thank you.